I love dogs. I love dogs, too. Glad we're all on the same page. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to the Sarah Andreco Show. Hey, everyone. It's Sarah. Thank you so much for joining me today. Today's topic is psychopharmaceuticals. And with me, I have two experts in the field, Dr. Amy Learn and Dr. Amy Pike, who are both board-certified veterinary behaviorists. And they're here to share a little bit of their wealth and knowledge to help primary care practitioners include different types of behavior medications, uh, medications for modifications, rather, in their practice. We're going to cover things like dosages, some common mistakes to avoid, and again, just some expertise to help you in choosing some of the right medications to treat those right target behaviors. So whether you're looking to kind of grow your own knowledge and help clients in-house in choosing the right medications through a behavior modification plan, or perhaps your clients don't necessarily have the resource or access to a board-certified veterinary behaviorist, because there are less than 100 of them in the country, so that can be difficult at times, I think you're going to find a lot of value in this video, um, and it's really going to be packed full of great information to help you in your own practice and kind of expand your knowledge when it comes to psychopharmacology. So without further ado, I would like to introduce our two guests today, Dr. Amy Pike and Dr. Amy Learn. Uh, they're both from Fairfax, Virginia, from the Animal Behavior Wellness Center. And I would like to turn the floor over to them so that they can tell you about their background, their wonderful expertise, and their knowledge. But ladies, if you don't mind, too, of course, always the important question of why behavior of all the specialty practices, surgery, cardiology, dermatology, why behavior? So Dr. Amy Pike, let's start with you. Yeah, you know, behavior is the money maker, so that's that's why I went into it. <laughs> Not, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm paying for my yacht right now, you know. <laughs> All about so, <laughs> exactly, as Sarah said, I'm Dr. Amy Pike from uh, Fairfax, Virginia, co-owner with Dr. Learn of the Animal Behavior Wellness Center, and um, I went to that school in Colorado State and actually joined the Army after veterinary school, so I was active duty army vet for three years. And that was, um, I'm showing my age right now, but that was our first uh, deployment round to Iraq and Afghanistan. So many of our military working dogs were coming back with symptoms of uh, what we now classify as PTSD. And that's kind of where I got my first um, interest in behavior medicine. So after the army, I did general practice and then did a residency under Dr. Deborah Horwitz in St. Louis. And the rest is history. So I'm going to turn over to Dr. Learn because she's going to tell you a little bit more about how you do become a board certified veterinary behaviorist. Yeah. So I have come to this a little bit late in life. I actually went to veterinary school and then uh, went into general, well, then I did an internship and I thought I was going to be a surgeon. So I did a surgical internship and then I decided to just be a housewife and, and get married and settle down. <laughs> and so I gave up a surgical residency and went into general practice for about 17 years. And then I said, I'm seeing a lot of problems in some of my patients with fear and anxiety and aggression. And there's not really a huge uh, um, array of people out there that can help them. And so I need to do something more to help my patients. And, you know, my goal is to care for their physical health, but I also want to care for their mental health. And so not knowing um, how to do that properly, I decided to do a behavior residency. And so I searched and searched and searched and I found some poor souls <laughs> that would help me. So to be a, a become a behavior resident, first of all, you have to be a veterinarian and you have to do an internship. 
And then you have to go and do a residency. And that can be a little bit tricky because you have two options at that stage. You can go to university and there are a few of them that are certified universities in the country that have a behavior program to teach their residents, but not all universities do. And not all people can go to university. I had a family and a job and I couldn't just move them around and, you know, change their whole lives to go back to school. So I chose to do a non-conforming residency. And what that means is instead of having classes at a university and a structured set of appointments and mentors there that can teach me and get me all of the information that I need, I had to go and find my way through and figure out what I needed to complete that curriculum. So I had to do a lot of online courses or go to university and take psychology and statistics and all of those kinds of things. I had to come up with a research plan and do that um, and have it published. I had to get information about all different species, so zoo animals. I worked with chimpanzees. I had to learn about farm animals and horses, cows, sheep, and goats. I had to learn about aquatics, so I did actually consult on a shark <laughs> case and, oh, wow. animals and all of those kinds of things to gather all of that information. And I think the challenging thing that people don't always understand is that behavior is almost always a diagnosis of exclusion. And so some of the other specialties think, oh, you have an easy job, you're just doing behavior. But really, we have to know about neurology, dermatology, internal medicine, surgery, all of the ologies, and, and be experts in those because we have to rule those things out to know that we are dealing with a behavioral problem and not a systemic or medical problem. And so once you complete all of those courses in human psychology and learning theory and ethology and all of the development of how animals learn and become who they are, then you get to study and study and study <laughs> and take an excruciatingly hard <laughs> for certification examination. And then you go into real life again. <laughs> Dr. Lauren just took her exam two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Yeah. Yes, congratulations, by the way. All that effort has paid off, right? It has. And I'm very lucky because I found two amazing women to mentor me. And, and one of them allowed me to join her practice and open up another branch in Richmond, Virginia. So it has been really amazing to learn from these mentors. Excellent. Well, and I, I have to say, like, everything that you just said says I have this intense amount of knowledge in my brain. So if you need help, please tap into that. This is my practice. This is my field. These are all the things that I went through to get here. So I can be such an important and valuable resource if you're in need, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that I gathered from that too is live your life, do all your things. But if you're my age or your age, I'm, I don't know if I'm older or not, but if you get to the end of the road and you think this is it, there's still always something else you can do. You can go back and you can specialize in something like behavior. So don't give up on that. I feel, I feel like a lot of people perhaps that are set in their ways and have been doing the same thing for such a long time feel like maybe they don't have it in them anymore to do. So thanks for being kind of an inspiration to say, hey, yeah, you can keep going. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah, Keep going. We uh, never stop learning. There's always another pathway to travel. <laughs> well, and just when we think we have it down, uh, the animals love to change things on us too. We find new and exciting uh, uh, facts that we can throw into the mix and try different things with. And so they always keep us on our toes, that's for sure. Absolutely. Um, and, 
Dr. Pike, it's so interesting that you came into it with PTSD and dogs. I mean, I work with um, service dogs in particular for people coming back from war with PTSD, for veterans in particular that are dealing with that. So it's always interesting to hear that other perspective from the dogs. Um, and we actually uh, have worked with several groups that unfortunately they've induced traumatic experiences in the dogs because of pairing them too early and then they don't decompress appropriately. So we see that side of behavior as well. But it's always interesting to put people into the perspective that it's not just the people that are suffering, but sometimes the dogs come back suffering too. So really, really cool work from that side of things. So, all right, so um, let's get into some drugs, shall we? <laughs> that, that could come across really bad depending on the audience. Um, we are talking psychopharmaceuticals, but before we talk about what to do, I, I would like to cover a couple of things from your perspective that you would say not to do. So maybe avoiding some common mistakes. Um, because again, as we talked about, this is such a specialty. It's so much knowledge and you can go so in far in depth. And I know that in vet school, though I haven't been through it, I know a lot of veterinarians, I have a lot of friends that are vets, you get bits and pieces of all of these different subjects, right? You get this small rotation in behavior, but you don't get this deep dive into it. So, I mean, I still, here we are in 2020, I still have clients every once in a while say, say things like, uh, you know, my vet told me to alpha roll my dog and it won't bite my kid again. And I'm just like, you know, but honestly, you, you only get small portions and, you know, the system isn't always at the cutting edge of science because you have all of these generalized things that you need to teach the students. So sometimes it hasn't quite caught up yet, or maybe it's an older doctor that, you know, things have changed since they went through vet school. So all that to say, I want to start by just, if you could go over a couple of common things to avoid, common mistakes, especially when it comes to choosing behavior medication, uh, medications for patients. Yeah, I think uh, the first thing is for sure that drugs alone are not going to cure the issue. So it is not medication in a vacuum. It is medication in combination with behavior modification. So just like with people, it's the psychiatrists prescribe the medication and the social workers and the psychologists work on the therapy. And so that is the same thing in our field as well. It's not just, I'm going to throw Prozac at this dog and it's automatically going to get better. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that really does seem to be that silver bullet that everybody reaches for. So, so what are we looking for? Why would we choose that versus something else? Right. We avoid making that mistake. Good question, Sarah. I was just going to say that everybody knows Prozac, right? Prozac is the big word. It's been around for so long, but Prozac is not always the right drug. And sometimes we don't even dose it right. I have a lot of um, clients that come to me and their dogs are on Prozac twice a day. That's only a once a day medication, period, the end. That has a very long half-life. We only need to give it once a day. And so when we choose medications, we have to look at the whole picture. We have to figure out what's going on with that animal, how long it's been going on, how intense it is, um, how quickly they can recover, what neurotransmitters are being are involved in that problem. And then we figure out the medication based on all of those things that's right for that individual, including, you know, other health issues, other medications that they're on. There's so many factors to take into consideration. Yeah. Yeah. And to that degree too, I mean, fluoxetine or Prozac isn't a twice daily medication. It's also not an as needed medication, right? So we see clients and, and they'll be like, well, I tried Prozac and I'll say, well, how long did you try it for? And they're like, three days. Like, well, that's not how that works, you know. So we need to understand sort of the um, the mechanism of action of these medications as well before we prescribe them. So with Prozac in particular, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're looking at least six weeks, between four and six weeks before you're going to see any type of real result if you're going to see that. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. You're going to get 
quicker results with the dog brand of uh, Reconcile and then the human generic probably a little bit longer. So anywhere from like four to eight weeks. Gotcha. And I think a lot of that is client education too, taking that knowledge that you have and explaining it to the client, just like you would with an antibiotic if you're treating a bacterial infection to where you need to see this all the way through so that we can determine whether it actually is effective or not. Any other type of common misconceptions or, or things to avoid in particular? Well, I think, um, you know, I am one of those veterinarians that has been in this, uh, both Dr. Lerner and I have been in practice for a long, long time. Um, and you are right that behavior has come a very long way in such a short time, really. And when I was in veterinary school, we were taught to alpha roll puppies. We were taught to put a prong collar on all puppies, um, all those things. And we didn't have a whole lot of medications to our um, advantage. So a lot of what we used were not really anti-anxiety medications like acepromazine. Acepromazine, we used to give it out like water, right? Every dog that came in for thunderstorm issues, uh, issues with the vet handling, we would give them acepromazine, which is just a sedative. It's not actually an anti-anxiety medication. And so we have a colleague um, who actually called it a chemical straitjacket. So you are sedating this animal to the point where they can't respond, but their brain is still responding to the fear. And so things have come a long way in a very short time when it comes to behavior. And unless you go to continuing education, you wouldn't necessarily know that. So yeah, yeah that's, that's really the behavior is not as sexy as surgery or some other things. And so people, when you have a conference and you have a limited amount of time that you want to get all of your continuing education credits and catch up on some things that you don't know, it's not always true that people go to behavior and seek those things out. And so it's harder to catch up with the things that change so quickly in behavior medicine. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I've, I've had a, quite a fear of acepromazine in particular for a while because I've seen the issues with um, dogs that tend to be more on the bitey side <laughs> that all of a sudden become much more confident in their bitiness than they had prior to acepromazine. So, yeah, and I agree. And continuing education is everything. Like, I can't get enough of it. And like you said before, you never stop learning and you really can't in this field. So thanks for bringing that up. Um, so, Consideration. So if we're looking at what type of medications to choose, um, what are some things that we should look at when it comes to choosing to start a medication, not starting a medication, any of the contraindications, um, likelihood for different problems to arise on a medication, some things like that? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the first things is it's not just Prozac for everybody, right? So we are looking at the symptoms of what is going on, the duration of what has been happening, um, the neurotransmitters that are likely involved in the manifestation of the behavior. So we're going to be looking at all of that to figure out, do we need, do we need medication? Number one, can we maybe just do this with just behavior modification? Not every dog that comes to see a veterinary behaviorist gets medication. The majority do granted, because by the time they get to us, um, they've been referred most likely from a trainer or a veterinarian. who's like, this is, you know, far beyond what is just a training issue. Um, but we're going to look at all of those different things to figure out, does the dog need a daily medication? Does the dog need a tricyclic antidepressant versus an SSRI versus an SNRI? Or do we need an event medication only? Or do we need a daily plus an event medication? So there's so much that kind of goes into how we pick and choose what medications to use. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I have that conversation on a daily basis with my clients. You know, some dogs don't need medication at all. 
Some dogs need event medication. Some dogs absolutely need to have medication so that I can calm their brain down a little bit. But regardless of whether they need medication or not, they always need management and they always need some kind of behavior modification because this isn't a magic wand that we just say, focus, focus, your dog is all better. We calm their brain down with medication when they need that. And that helps them focus and learn what they need to learn for those coping skills so they can deal with those things later on. Absolutely. And you know, deciding if this is a one-time event problem, like I only have an issue when I go to the vet, I don't need something that's daily necessarily. We're looking at event specific medications versus, you know, same with like thunderstorm phobias, things like that versus I have daily anxieties. I'm afraid of everything in the apartment complex where I live, every, every sound, you know, maybe I have a sound sense. The dog has a sound sensitivity or something like that. We're looking at more of a, a long-term medication for them. Yep, absolutely. And what about um, in puppies too? I've had a couple of veterinarians tell me before that they're very cautious and very careful about using behavior medica uh, medications in puppies because it has a different effect um, physiologically and they're, they're really kind of tentative about that. So what are your, what, what is your aspect on, on usage of, of psychopharmaceuticals in puppies? Do you wanna answer this one, Dr. Lauren? The sooner the better. And so oh. what I know is that it's really scary when you're thinking about using a lot of medications in puppies because we don't want to break them. But if they're that severe that you're thinking about using medications, they're kind of already broken. And I don't mean that to be glib. I mean that they are not functioning in a normal way. And what we want is to make sure that we can straighten that out before they become 100 pounds and not functioning in a normal way. And so the earlier that we can get involved, there's even a chance that we can cure them. And I almost never say the word cure when I'm talking about behavior, because behavior is not a disease that you cure. It is contextual. It depends on the situation that you're in and the threats that are around you. But when you're a puppy, your brain is still changing. Your neurons are still making connections and those pathways are malleable. And so if I can use a medication and get those pathways to be a little bit more normal and have that brain function a little bit more normally, then that will straighten out some of that development. And I may be able to cure you at that stage because of that development process is still ongoing. Once you reach four months, it's done, right? We then are managing and modifying and helping and coping, but we're not fixing per se. Yeah, the sooner the better for sure. Are there any drugs in particular that you tend to avoid with puppies or um, anything that you typically recommend kind of as, as a, a starting point? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to depend on the on the diagnosis. Many of these puppies are pretty shut down. And so like for a dog that is super shut down, we may use um, sertraline, which is an SSRI. Zoloft is the brand name of that. Um, it's an SSRI, so it increases serotonin, but it also increases dopamine, which is our activation or our pleasure neurotransmitter. So dogs that are super shut down tend to benefit from a little dopaminergic activity. So if they are not being a normal puppy and, you know, playing and having zoomies and, you know, doing naughty puppy things, then likely they're too shut down. They need some sort of activation. And so we may reach for sertraline in those cases. Gotcha. Um, are there times where you would reach for something that's more on the holistic scale, something more like a supplement or a probiotics versus an actual um, pharmaceutical? Yeah, I think part of it is going to depend on severity, but also owner preference. Um, there are some owners that despite our best efforts, we are unable to convince them to stop medication when it's warranted. And so if they are 
hesitant, then we will use supplements, pheromones, uh, probiotics, those types of products. And along the same line, sometimes I add, sometimes I'm getting a pretty good response with the medication, but I need a little bit more. And so then I'll add in an adjunctive therapy, pheromones, um, probiotics, um, L-theanine, alpha-casazepine. There's lots of different things to choose from. And what, um, what typically leads you in the direction of choosing one of those things in particular? So especially for puppies, I think we're, um, I'm going to reach for a pheromone first and foremost. So it's like the adaptal pheromone, which is the maternal appeasing pheromone that mother dogs produce when they're nursing their puppies. So it's very applicable for that, um, you know, those puppy stages and it can enhance learning as well. And so um, in my opinion, I think every puppy should have an adaptal collar on until at least a year of age. Um, if I had my way with the world, but um, for sure, that's what I'm going to reach for. If we have manifestations of like gastrointestinal issues when the animal is stressed, I'm going to reach more for like our probiotic products, like the Purina Calming Care, um, those types of things. Perfect. So I would like to talk a little bit about choosing the right medication for treating the right problematic behavior. Like you mentioned before, we have a tendency, not we, not I, um, veterinarians do often have a tendency to throw Prozac at everything. Um, So when you're looking at all of the different medications that are available now and all these different behaviors that you guys are treating, what kind of guides you to choose a specific medication for a specific behavior? So an example I like to use is the difference between a dog that might have fear aggression versus civil aggression, you know, two very different drivers and motivators as far as what those aggressive tendencies are being caused by um, in the brain in particular. So what what kind of things do you consider when you're deciding which drug to use with which um, behavioral problem that they're seeing? What's really driving that decision? It's all about neurotransmitters. So if I want to increase um, the dog's ability to cope and have more cognitive thought when they're stressed, I'm going to reach for something that increases serotonin. Um, If I need to regulate norepinephrine, kind of our flight or fight molecule, I'm going to reach for something like an alpha-2 agonist like clonidine for an event medication or an SNRI, which regulates serotonin and norepinephrine. So it's, it's really driven by signs, symptoms, um, and what we feel like neurotransmitters need modulated in that patient. And how do you determine really if you're going to start with the medication? Say your client comes to you and they're on board with the idea of using a medication to help with behavior modification. Um, are there are there times where you say, hold on, let's try something else first? Or do you typically always say, okay, if you're willing to do this, let's go ahead and try this? I, I mean, I, I'm happy to answer that if you want to. <laughs> I, mean, I think we're both going to say the same thing. Probably. Go ahead. <laughs> so um, it really does, again, have to come back to the diagnosis and the severity and the frequency. And so, you know, we'll see things along the spectrum of a puppy that's just having play biting that maybe isn't even abnormal, but the owners are scared. And so that puppy might not need some medication, but we might need some management and some tools to kind of teach them. And then we have, you know, other animals that might be so fearful that they're jumping through windows or destroying the house or so aggressive that they're sending people to the hospital. And so what we have to figure out is what's going on? What's that diagnosis? Are there other medical things that we have to rule out? And then what's the best medication for that based on neurochemistry, like Dr. Pike said, based on research, you know, certain medications have been 
done, there are studies to prove that it works in this condition versus this condition or not supported in other conditions. So we want to kind of take all of that science together and make an appropriate plan along with those owners. Yeah, and if, and if also we have the ability to implement behavior modification. So if the animal is truly panicking, they're not going to be able to learn during those moments, right? So we need to quiet their brain for that. If let's say we have a dog that has leash reactivity where he's reactive towards other dogs, if it's like the first moment they see the dog a thousand yards away, there's no room for behavior modification to work out. But if it's like, oh, the dog's okay until we get about 10 feet away, then there's room to actually do the training. And so that's really going to drive whether we need medication or not as well. Excellent point. Yeah. Um, and oftentimes too, it, it, I always like to, to hear from the veterinarian's perspective too, which um, arena they've started with first. Have you called the trainer first? Have you talked to a behavior professional? Are you going to the veterinary, the veterinarian secondarily, or did you start it with the veterinarian? And is it um, perhaps a good idea to involve a behavior professional or a trainer as well? Again, it's kind of the, the um, teamwork makes the dream work kind of thing. So I'm always interested to hear kind of which came first to see where people are in the process of deciding how to move forward as well. So, um, and kind of on that note in selecting different medications, if you could just highlight a little bit on dosages, um, aside from the puppy issue, uh, some of the feedback that I've gathered as well, I've, I've heard veterinarians say before like, wow, that's the dosage that they're using in anxiety. I would never, you know, I would never use that high of a dosage with that drug. Like, that's really scary. I'm really concerned about doing that. Let's start much, much, much lower to where you may or may not even see an effect in the dog. So um, I know there's some overlap with um, pain medications in particular and anti-anxiety medications, gabapentin in particular. So can you talk a little bit about dosing for something like pain versus dosing for something like behavior? Yeah, absolutely. Gabapentin has a huge dose range. And traditionally we have used that in veterinary medicine for pain or epilepsy. Um, and the dose is five to 10 mg per kg every eight to 12 hours. Whereas from a behavior standpoint for anti-anxiety um, effect, we actually want 20 to 40. And there's even uh, about to be some published things about up to 50 mg per kg Q eight hours. So, so much, much higher than the pain control dose. So if you're using it at the pain control dose, you may not be getting an anxiolytic effect at all with that medication. Mm -hmm. And so I have clients come to me and say, oh, we tried that, it didn't work. Okay, let's talk about that a little bit more. What dose did you try? How long did you try it? And the same thing with, like Dr. Pike said earlier with the fluoxetine, we tried that for three days. Okay, <laughs> let's, let's <laughs> reconsider what we wanna do. And, and I do also, um, I'm, I'm also mindful of the side effects that go along with some of those medications. So I tend to start low and make sure that we're not seeing a lot of those negative side effects that can be a decreased appetite or vomiting or lethargy or those kinds of things. And I will titrate up slowly until I get to the therapeutic value because clients are immediately gonna turn back off and say, I can't give this medication to my dog. He's throwing up all over the house. And I don't want that to happen to the dog either. I don't wanna make them feel worse to make them better. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that being said, if they see side effects, the owners are gonna be very hesitant with medication. So, and, and I've seen sort of all over the spectrum from referring veterinarians where like today I had a 90 pound dog come in on 10 milligrams of fluoxetine, which is, I mean, basically I joked that I was like, we were just like blowing fluoxetine in its face. 
sprinkle a little over. <laughs> a little. Um, you know, but then I've seen like, oh, this is horrible. I'm going to dose it at 90 milligrams, right? And they're going to see all kinds of side effects at that dosage from the get-go. So knowing that we have to start low and what, what low is um, and titrate up, like Dr. Learn said, um, depending on what we're seeing. And we can measure that too. We want to talk to the owners, get reports back. I, I request that my owners give me feedback every one to two weeks so that I know what's happening. I can adjust the plan. I can tweak the dose. I can figure out what's going on. And some of that is subjective, but it still is valuable information. There are other things that we can do. There are, you know, behavior scales that we can look at. There are even um, measurements like fecal cortisol samples that we can run. Those are really great quantitative ways to say, what stress are you under? And can we track that and make sure that we're making an improvement along the way with our therapy? So is there a good resource for um, primary care veterinarians to go to to look at something like how to determine what that what that scale, that behavior scale looks like? You know, is it is it a one to five? Is it a one to ten? Like, where can they get that information to say, I can use this in my own practice, I can share this with my clients, and we can have this open communication and dialogue to figure out if this this therapeutic medication is actually um, producing the effects that we're looking for and how to kind of measure that. Um, and also, if you don't mind touching on the fecal cortisol level, like um, in one of the practices that I worked with prior, we were looking at doing um, uh, serum levels, but we found that taking the samples was more stressful, which could cause increased cortisol as it is anyway. So we were like, now forget this. Mm -hmm. So tell me more about that too, but um, just give me some ideas to what if, if a veterinarian is looking for some of those kind of key parameters where they would start to find that to share that with clients to get that feedback. Yeah, I mean, there's a number of different texts out there. Do you have one in particular, Dr. Lerner? No, I was just think? thinking, um, and my immediate thought was even as simple as the fear-free FAS scales, right? Kind of talking about, that's a, a hot topic, right? There's a lot of veterinarians or even practices that are being certified and that that is a lecture that's very common in, at many of our big conferences and so kind of looking at their fear anxiety and stress scale and seeing where they are uh, i use often kind of the ladder of aggression to kind of talk to clients about what signs to look for to show me what stress level their their patient their pet is feeling those are really the ones that i stick with most often yeah, and even just a subjective, like on a scale of one to 10, how was today? You know, or like, how was that particular walk? So the owner can kind of track over time, like look at trends, that kind of thing. But that, I mean, behavior oftentimes is a very subjective finding, right? Like, oh, we had a good day. Oh, we had a bad day. Um, the fecal cortisol is a really awesome test that we, um, that myself and Dr. Learn and Dr. Lisa Radasta in Florida are currently tracking our patients with. So basically cortisol is our stress hormone and how we get rid of it when we're done with it in our bodies is we poop and pee it out. And one of the things that we can do is actually test fecal cortisol to see how stressed is that patient at sort of as a general picture of what's going on today. Um, and so we will do like a baseline sample when that patient first comes in and then every three to four months, we'll do a repeat sample to see, are we making the progress decreasing that cortisol level into the normal range for that particular patient? And so we have a more um, you know, objective, quantifiable number that yes, we are making progress for that patient. I don't even expect many of my patients to be in the normal range when they come to see me. 
And no. my goal isn't even always to get them into the normal range, but I want to see improvement over the time. And what can even be tricky is that some of my patients have extremely low cortisols when they come to see me, which isn't appropriate. You would expect it to be high. And what that tells me is that their um, kind of hormone axis, their hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis that is in charge of regulating your stress and distress and all of those things in your body has actually been under such high levels of stress for so long that it is down regulated your body's response. And so it's falsely low. And so some people are like, great, that's a great number. I'm like, oh no, oh no, this is bad. Does it help to have the owners um, bring samples into you versus bringing the animal into the hospital? So can they do a drop off or do you need a fresh sample for something like that? They can drop it right off and, and it's, you know, it's easily obtained. Nobody wants to keep it for themselves. So they're happy to give it to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would love to see more people um, start kind of that practice up just to, just to start gathering as much data as possible to give you more information. That would be great. It's right around the corner. There's going to be some more studies. <laughs> yes, I love it. I would love to see those for sure. Um, well, and the other thing I want to ask you about too is, is, and you deal with owners all the time, but when it comes to compliance, oftentimes getting that feedback and gathering data can be difficult. So any tips on that? Like, especially when you're working through a behavior modification plan and you're using new medications and you really need that information back to see if this is working or not. But um, in addition to like the scale and kind of measuring the fecal cortisol levels, what, what are some, some tips that you can give to uh, veterinarians as far as um, owner compliance, like really pressing, uh, pressing to them that this is important that we gather this feedback and this data back. They're just going on living their day-to-day -day lives, waiting for the medication to kick in kind of thing. And we're over here going, we need info. We need more information. Like, tell us if it's working. Is it not? How's your animal feeling? So, you know, what can we do to kind of increase owner compliance with that? You know, ask them for maybe twice week updates, or do you find that there's a certain amount of time that they're more compliant than, than asking like everyday updates? Yeah, I think every day is a little too much for most people. I wouldn't even want that. I think it's really similar from like a general practitioner standpoint for like a weight loss program, um, making sure that you have dedicated team members that are going to be sort of that client's handholder throughout the whole process. Um, so they have someone that they can go to, they know they can reach out to anytime that they need them, um, that they're going to reach out to the to the client if they haven't heard back in a reasonable amount of time. So that way it's this whole sort of support group um, to make sure that we're making the progress that we need to make. Because just like with weight loss, um, things can go south on us pretty quickly if we're not um, actually tracking and keeping track of what's going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Have a conversation with my clients, you know, from the very start and say, you know, I might be the big brain with the, the tips of the trade behind this, but our success depends on you and telling me how things are going so that I can change things if I need to, reporting back and also practicing at home, right? We're going to be doing a lot of training, a lot of behavior therapy, and you can't just do that once a month or when you feel like it. You've got to have that consistent program to follow through so that pet keeps learning and making progress and you then have to practice at home. Yeah, I feel like that those checkpoints are so very important, too, because as the owners are in there day to day, sometimes it's not as easy for them to see those progressive steps that their animal has taken from 
day one to day 90, you know, because they're in that process the whole time and they're in it the whole time, whereas you might see them, you know, month one and then month four and you're like, wow, this is great. Look at the, look at all this progress that we've made. So I feel like the open communication between everyone involved in the modification for this for this particular animal will um, be helpful to the clients to see what what's happening along the way as well and hopefully find some hope in that too for their for their pet um one of the things i wanted to ask about too is that sometimes you know you you start with one medication in particular and maybe it's not working maybe some of this feedback that we're gathering says that we should change the medication change dosage so kind of knowing when to do that um, but also that you can't always hop from one medication right to the next and kind of explaining that to owners as well so are there any medications in particular that you want to mention um, not hopping cold turkey from one to the other? Obviously, there's some that titrate the system and need to wean down, but um, what are some, some common ones that you know of that need a period in between, and what does that period in between look like? Yeah, so, I mean, everything that we're going to base this off of is about the half-life of the medication, whether it be the half-life of the medication itself or the active metabolites once the animal metabolizes that medication. So, Everything is, we need to know those numbers. So like fluoxetine um, in particular has, Prozac has one of the longest half-lights of any of our medications that we use out there. If we are going to switch to something like an MAOI or monoamine oxidase inhibitor, those two medications can interact so severely together that we can cause severe issues like serotonin syndrome in the pet. We have to have a five-week washout between fluoxetine and starting an MAOI. And that means not stopping fluoxetine cold turkey. If they've been on it for a long time, we have to do a wean-off period and then completely five weeks without medication before we start them on an MAOI. So, um, but if you're switching from fluoxetine to another SSRI, you don't have to have a washout. You can stop fluoxetine one day and start peroxetine the very next day. So knowing how those mechanism of actions work um, in these medications is important. Absolutely. I mean, the same thing. And actually, along with what Dr. Pike said, one of the things that I get often is my dog's going to go have a mass removed or he's going to have a surgery for something and he's going to be under anesthesia and they told me he can't eat that morning. So I didn't give him any of his meds and I'm like, ah, no, don't do that. <laughs> and so we don't have to stop all meds before surgery. We can talk about, you know, can they get a little bite of something? What time is that procedure? Can they take it on an empty stomach? Those medications have a job. And for the long-term medications, your brain chemistry has adjusted. So you don't want to just skip doses. The second part of that is some of our event medications are very useful in pre-anesthesia, kind of sedative, getting ready, reducing some of the doses of other anesthetic drugs because that patient is less anxious, less frightened, less uh, adrenaline pumping through their body. And so the other drugs that they're going to use for sedation and anesthesia are much more effective and you can use lower doses of them. So I never recommend not giving them their daily or situational medications before a surgical procedure. Yeah, that's really good to know. And I, I've noticed um, definitely an increase in some of the practices that I work with in particular of using PVPs on board um, just to make the whole experience much easier and much better on each patient that comes to the door. So I love that more and more practices are starting to do that now. Us too. Yeah, yeah. So um, 
let's talk about when it's time to call in you. <laughs> when is it time to call Dr. Pike or Dr. Learn? You know, you have a, a, a primary care veterinarian that is seeing a, a particular patient. Um, when is it a good idea to pick up the phone and say, hey, I need a consult and just schedule one with you to discuss this patient in particular, or I need to connect you specifically with this client to help this patient? Um, yeah. Now, yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the frustrations about being a veterinary behaviorist is we hear very commonly that we're the last resort and we should never be the last resort period. Um, if we are the last resort, we are very unlikely to be able to affect the change that we need to, to make that dog or cat or bird or horse a um, member of the family or the society, right? we should be one of the first calls that's made um, if there's a behavior issue, especially if there's some sort of medical component going on that maybe the veterinarian can't figure it out, but gosh, it seems such a sudden change of behavior. Maybe it's definitely medical. Send it to the veterinary behaviorist. Um, if they need medication, right? It's so intense and severe that the trainers have been not making progress. And, and by progress, I mean within six to eight weeks of starting training, we're not seeing significant change already. That needs a veterinary behaviorist involved. That's when we need to say, you know what, I bet it's time for medication. So sooner rather than later, always. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and you know, we often work as a team, just like we said before, um, and Sarah, you even said, we can, we're unique as a specialty because veterinarians can refer to us. Owners can seek us out on their own. Trainers can refer to us, right? You can, anybody's welcome, come on in. But, but the important part of that is we are a team. It takes a village to help these patients. And so I always refer back to the regular vet and talk about plans and I send reports to the trainer and the trainer send reports to me. And so we're all caring together to make the best progress that we can. I couldn't agree more. And I will tell you that, um, not that you want to hear this, but I often, it, it, you you guys are often the last resort. And it's one of those things that with my own behavior clients, I say, have you contacted a veterinary behaviorist? Have you thought about taking this route? Oftentimes, they don't know the difference. They don't even know that a veterinary behaviorist is different from the person down the street that trains dogs as a hobby and calls himself a behavioralist. So right. There's there's a lack of education to begin with, so I think it's really important for professionals to be very open and carry this dialogue with their clients to let them know what resources are available to them, and it's not a last resort. It is a let's get this on board as quickly as possible and kind of tackle this from a multifaceted perspective so we can throw what we need to throw at the dog to see the, the dog progress as quickly as possible in the right direction. So I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, yeah, immediately, right away. <laughs> Problems <laughs> don't get better on their own. They get worse, for sure. And they won't so. grow out of it, right? That's something that we see all the time. In fact, I had a client today who has a dog that is um, chasing his tail and mutilating, and he's been doing it for four years. And when he was a puppy, wow. he started doing it. And the medical team that was in charge of this puppy said, oh, as he gets older, he'll just grow out of it. It'll be fine. It's just a puppy. He's just being a silly puppy. And he's not. And now he's mutilating himself. And so if I could have had my hands on that puppy right away, I might have been able to fix it more easily than I can now. Absolutely. Right. It is. It's just that behavior. The worst it's going to get. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, you, and you're right. I feel like, um, and I, I see this, and I'm not a veterinary behaviorist, where I'm kind of the, the last straw, the last resort. We're so frustrated. 
we're going to find another family for it or we're going to euthanize it. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> you know, I wish you would, I wish you would have called me, you know, last year when you started seeing these different issues. But I feel like people get to the end of their rope and they just don't know what to do. So um, the more education we can get out there about the resources that are available to people, I think the more um, they're going to rely on you for sure to help them through that process. Well, I think, you know, for owners, behavior problems are, are embarrassing sometimes, right? And yeah. so don't want to talk to their veterinarian about it. And so just like we, as uh, when we were general practitioners, you know, we would ask them like any coughing, sneezing, vomiting, diarrhea, we need to be eliciting that information from our owners. Like, are there any behaviors that you wish your dog didn't do or your cat didn't do? Is there something that you have concerns about? And we screening those early so you can say, look, this is, this is a serious issue. You need to see somebody. And number one, it's not your fault because I think owners, a lot of owners feel like they're going to get the blame for that issue. Um, it's not your fault and you need help. And the sooner we get you that help, the better. I love that you just said that. I definitely think that's an important piece of triage in general because that's their overall mental well-being. And I do think, um, Interestingly enough, on the side of the client who's embarrassed, I feel like veterinarians are embarrassed too. They don't want to offend the client or push the client away or make them feel like they're not good dog parents. And so I think that's a hard conversation for a lot of veterinarians to have. So I love the way that you just put that. I think that's a great example for veterinarians to use and approaching it in a very delicate way that says, this isn't your fault. You know, I tell people all the time, dogs don't come with instruction manuals. <laughs> like, they, they don't. You know, most people think, oh, I have a dog. I feed it. I take care of it. I play with it. We're good, right? Um, so I think um, for veterinarians to become more comfortable in broaching that subject and having that conversation and asking those questions without feeling like they're um, being judgmental or that the client feels judged in that is, is really critical. Absolutely. I think there's also a really common misperception of animals motivations and feelings and so we're very quick to label them stupid and stubborn and spiteful and mean and grumpy and all of the things that we say but all of those things have a reason and a lot of it is fear and lack of training or lack of socialization or hard times and not knowing what to do i'm feeling overwhelmed and so if we can kind of change some of that and add some more empathy then we can help those patients and those clients that are embarrassed um, to help their pets behave in a better way, and then everybody can be happy. Absolutely, yeah. So, have you been having some? I have to ask some extra fun uh, with with COVID and with quarantine. Are you seeing any really fun cases and any any uh, tidbits that you want to give to veterinarians that might be seeing a spike in in different issues? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that we've seen up here is um, everybody adopted a dog during this time frame. <laughs> Shelf, they cleared out the shelters, right? And if they couldn't find a dog at a shelter, they went and got a puppy. Because, um, you know, I get it. It's a perfect time. We're all home. We have time to potty train and, you know, dedicate training. Yeah. But what's going to happen, number one, when we all go back to work, right? Are we going to see this huge uptick in separation anxiety from these animals that never learned to be home alone? But also these animals aren't getting socialized like they would during non-pandemic times. You can't take them everywhere. Um, classes were shut down for months here, right? So even just going to like a puppy socialization class or obedience class, you couldn't do it. And so some of these animals were already starting to see the repercussions of a lack of socialization, lack of learning to be home alone by themselves. All of that is um, unfortunately gonna be a result of um, this time. 
Mm -hmm. There's going to be an explosion when, when the world starts to come back to normal, mm -hmm. that we're going to see a huge uptick in anxiety and separation anxiety specifically and all of those things. So these pets are going to need a lot of extra support. Yeah. So have Dr. Pike and Dr. Learn on speed dial. Be ready for it. Use them as a resource. Reach out for sure. Yeah, we're always happy. We're always happy to talk to veterinarians. I would, I would probably prefer to talk to vets all day long than see patients myself. Yeah. Um, so, and I think that most veterinary behaviorists feel the same way. So definitely reach out. We're here to help. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so very much. I really appreciate this. And I, I know that there are many veterinarians out there that perhaps have not taken any of your CE yet that will truly appreciate this and find value in this content. So I really appreciate your time. Is there anything else that you want to uh, talk about or mention before we wrap up for the evening? I don't think no, so. No, thank you. Thank you for having us. This is really a yeah. fun little fireside chat. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I find it incredibly helpful and I, I truly appreciate it. I'm going to put a link to the Animal Behavior Wellness Center where you two um, both work so that if anyone wants to reach out or has questions or would like to pull you in on a client or refer you, they can very easily do that. And um, I'll put some other notes in the bottom too to kind of help uh, provide some resources. Um, anything that you want to add to this, we can put in those notes in the description below as well. And uh, thank you so very much for your time. It was lovely speaking with you. And um, yeah, you take care. All thank the best. You. Take care. Okay.